Oh, hello! Oh, you're early, yes, but <laughs> never mind. My door is always open. Sit down. Here. A nice warm drink and a mince pie. <laughs> well, firstly, I would like to say a big thank you for all of your support this year. It really means a lot. And without you listening to it, well, I wouldn't be making it. As you know, as yet unexplained is, or rather was, unfortunately this is the last episode of the series, a six-part series. I've already told you the tale of Charterhouse, the San Pedro haunting, ancient UFO sightings, oh, and the sinking of the USS Scorpion. But I thought, as it is midwinter, we would look at the tradition of telling ghost stories at Christmas and the chilling tale of the mistletoe bride. Oh, and if you don't mind, when you get back home, and well, obviously if you've liked this, what you've heard, please consider liking and subscribing, or even writing a review on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. You see, the tradition of telling creepy ghost stories at Christmas in a darkened, chilled room with a crackling fire casting orange light and elongated shadows dates back for many hundreds of years. Human nature at the time of the winter solstice is like that of all creatures of the earth. And when the nights get shorter and colder, the natural instinct is for all those creatures to gather together for safety and comfort. Naturally, this season is steeped in death, the death of the foliage, and natural things succumbing to the cold and hunger as their food sources are depleted. It is therefore a reasonable assumption that it is also a time of remembrance. The human mind summarizes the passage of time since the last gathering together of people and harvests. In this remembrance, we consider all those we have lost or are no longer with us. It can be uplifting to recall those people, and sometimes it is painful. It is from these factors that we can clearly see one of the main building blocks to the reasoning behind telling ghostly and or cautionary tales during this dark period of death and rebirth. The days surrounding December the 25th have historical connections with the winter solstice and midwinter, and the belief that as the light of the sun dies, then the barrier between the worlds of light and dark, the living and the dead, become thin, and one can easily pass from one to another. This was celebrated by Yuletide, the longest night of the year. The symbolism of the winter solstice is still prevalent today, with pagan examples ranging from holly berries, yule logs, wreaths, and mistletoe. In more modern times, this belief has been swept under the carpet by Christianity, and it was not until the format of Christmas as we know it today was first established in the Victorian era 
that we see elements of this association with the dark take shape in the tradition of telling ghost stories. The ghost story tradition predated the rigid Victorian structured traditions for Christmas, as it is estimated that the tradition started as early as the 1800s and ran into the early years of the next century and would once again resurface in the 1970s and periodically after that. Nothing satisfies us on Christmas Eve but to hear each other tell authentic anecdotes about spectres, stated writer Jerome K. Jerome, for the introduction of his 1891 anthology Told After Supper of Christmas Ghost Stories. Charles Dickens had a big part to play in continuing the tradition of the Christmas Ghost Story, as too did writers such as Algernon Blackwood and E.F. Benson, and latterly such 20th century writers as M.R. James and A.M. Burridge. The tradition is still in full swing, with the BBC showing either an M.R. James adaptation or an original seasonal horror from Mark Gatiss. One spine-chilling tale has withstood the test of time and has been passed down through the generations through oral tradition, poems, songs, and into cinema, and that is the tale of the mistletoe bride. After I have recounted this tale to you, we will look at its possible origins and try to establish if there are any truths in this tale or the real-life ghostly apparitions that are said to be connected to it. It is said that in the 17th century, a beautiful young woman named Anne was giddy with anticipation at the prospect of marrying her betrothed, a Lord Lovell. The couple had an unbreakable love and spent every second they could in each other's company, forever looking into each other's eyes with their hearts and minds full of the love that would last them until the end of their time on earth. The date for the union was set, and they were to be wed on Christmas Eve at Bramsill House in Hampshire, England. The building sported grounds that consisted of 300 acres, with beautiful, majestic views that sprawled right up to the entrance of the Jacobean mansion. It seemed fitting that a beauty such as Anne's would forever reside in a building that was built to be a royal palace by Henry, son of James I. The day in question was a dark one, as was fitting for a day so late in the month of December and in the middle of winter. But the great hall was decorated with bold, colourful decorations that brightened the whole home. The couple said their eternal vows and were wed, Lord Lovell looked regal in his suit, and Anne looked like a queen dressed in white 
am wearing a lovely bridal wreath of festive mistletoe. Their happiness cut through the darkness of the season and radiated out and warmed the hearts and minds of all of their guests. The event of two esteemed people getting married attracted the attention of all the gentry, as this was an event that no one wanted to miss. Swathes of friends, family and well-wishers came to the house and never had such happiness and joy been brought to the area. Their guests had always been aware of their love for each other. It was not a case of if, but when they would marry. After the ceremony, the celebrations continued with a feast to which the couple were toasted, and much happiness and joy was felt by all. Towards the evening, the group all moved to one of the great halls, where much joy and jubilation was felt by all, as they all took part in a seasonal baroque dance, such as the Bury, the Gavotte, and the Ragadoon. Husband took wife by the hand, and they danced, spinning into infinity with their love for each other. Needless to say that after much food, drink and dancing, the wedding party decided that activities with a less violent movements were required, and Anne suggested a game of hide-and-seek be played. With such a large group, it was decided that all the women should go and hide, whilst the men stayed back, and after a period of time, they would search for them. The bride, not before giving her husband a final lingering kiss, fled the room in excitement with her entourage of excited, giggling girls. The older women still leg-worn from dancing. The young girls flurried up the massive staircase with the intention to lose themselves within the many rooms and the obstacles within. They hid behind, inside and within some of the most typical objects such as curtains, wardrobes, cupboards and underbeds. Anne went from room to room only to find all the best hiding places were taken by some of her dearest friends. They would quietly laugh and Anne would move on to another room. Amusement would slowly turn to panic as she realised that time was running out and a storm of eager young men would come thundering up the stairs in hot pursuit of the women who were cowering amongst the shuttles. Anne, whilst deep in thought, looked up and saw the small staircase that led to the attic space. A smile spread across her face as she posed that this location would no doubt be the last one that anyone would look in. Anne entered the dusty, dark room, and its sparseness worried her to start with, as there was not much furniture in this location, thus very little for her to hide behind or within. Tucked deep in the corner of the room was an impressively carved oak chest, a flash of inspiration darted into her mind as she heaved up the heavy lid and peered into the chest's empty, dark interior. Sensing that her allotted time to hide was almost up, she instinctively looked around her, perhaps to make sure her actions were not being observed, and stepped into the thick, 
heavy chest. She slowly crouched down, and with the lid slightly ajar, the glint of her eyes peeping out of the gap was the only source of life in the room. Anne stopped and waited with bated breath, her eyes flickering from left to right as she tried to make out the details in the room. It was only after the accident that she had time to recollect on the exact sequence of events that led to it. There was a sudden high-pitched shout or squeal from one of the guests in the room below her. This sudden shout startled her and Anne jolted within the box. This jolting action caused her to fall backwards within the oak chest. The lid of the heavy chest came slamming down with a deep resonating thud. Anne sat up in the box and using all her strength tried to heave up the lid from within. The box was far too heavy. This action caused panic to flood into those beautiful glittering eyes, eyes now sparkling with tears. In her panic, she managed to lift the lid but a few millimetres before it came crashing down again. Only this time she heard the squeal of metal on metal as the latch of the box squeaked closed. With a flurry of fists and legs, she pounded on the inside of the box, desperately trying to get the attention of anyone passing by. But her instinct about the attic being the last place anyone would look in was correct. Before too long, the men came rushing up the stairs and frantically swarmed into every room. They upturned bedclothes, opened curtains and opened cupboards and drawers in hot pursuit of the hiding girls. As each woman was found, they added to the collective and they too searched out every nook and cranny for the hiding guests. After a time, all, if not most, of the female guests had been found, and much giggling and laughter had been had, until only one solitary figure was left standing in the upstairs hallway. He had searched in every room, twice if not three times. He had looked inside, around, and between everything he found within each room. But alas, Lord Lovell could not find his wife. By now, most of the guests had joined Lovell in a more stringent search of the property. Areas that had previously been thought out of bounds to a woman of her standing were now being investigated. Servants' quarters were overturned, as were kitchens and washing areas. The gardener was even called and asked to make a search of the outhouses and grounds, but this was to no avail. It was while searching the upper floors again that the groom managed to look upon the same staircase that had informed Anne's decision to hide in the attic. With a slight skip in his heart, he walked without hesitation to the entrance, hoping to find his love. 
Slowly, the door creaked open. He was actually in two minds as to whether he should sneak up on her and give her a scare, perhaps as payback for the anguish he felt at not being able to find her. He stepped into the room. The dust glinted and played within the light that the opening door cast. Striated beams searched out the details within the old, quiet room. It looked as if no one had been within this silent chamber for decades. The light from the open door swept into the darkness, but only so far, and its beams failed to illuminate the old, heavy oak chest. The very room seemed to be holding its breath, as if waiting for Lovell to leave, so it could resume its solitude in peace. Within the confines of the box, Anne had overexerted herself to the point of passing out. Her screams had been absorbed by the ancient wood of the chest, as were her tears, all apart from those that had cascaded down her cheeks. Her hands were bloody from pounding on the lid, and her fingernails were ragged and splintered. With a sigh, Anne's husband turned and walked out of the attic, his head bowed and his hands limply falling to his side as he relinquished his grip on the door handle. Evening had now turned to night and many of the guests had made their excuses and left. Their uncomfortable goodbyes only worsening the situation. With everyone gone, Lovell made his way up the long, lonely staircase to their bedroom and spent the night staring into the darkness of the room, the day's events playing out constantly on a loop in his mind, trying to figure out any reason why she would leave him and run away, especially on their wedding day. Christmas Day came and went, and the servants would search constantly within the house simply because they could not believe that she had run away. Eventually, sleepless night after sleepless night would give way to total exhaustion and a deep sadness that seemed to strike him like a spear in his heart. His immense sadness dictated the rest of his life and would see many of his friends and acquaintances slowly turn their back on this sad representation of the man he once was. A husk of gnawing, gut-wrenching pain that no amount of love and care could cure him of. Lovell became like a ghostly figure within his own home, a rarely seen being drifting like a spirit from room to room with no direction or reason. The pain he felt ate into his soul and this empty husk would never love again. As the passage of time eternally rolls by, regardless of the actions or pain of humanity, the house fell into disrepair as a number of servants found new positions of servitude with other families, and eventually Lovell died. 
leaving his estate to a distant relative. As the home became more decrepit and the events of that terrible Christmas Eve faded away, so did the interest of the distant relatives and the entire estate was sold off at auction, one less hindrance for them. The new owners of the estate went through the property with a fine-toothed comb so they could assess the problems that they would have to deal with, be them cosmetic or structural. The small team of people ascertained that everything from the foundations to the walls of the upstairs bedroom was sound, but there was one area left that they needed to check. The small party entered the attic space. The room looked older and frailer than it did back in Lovell's time. It was like the room had started to break down and crumble. Its past had become breathable as it hung suspended in the air. The grain of the woodwork of the room had lifted like the veins of a wizened old man's arm. That is all except the dark patinaed wood chest that lay neatly tucked away within the deepest recesses of the room. The guttering candle that was held by the new owner of the home flickered and cast long, frantically moving shadows within this room. After many years, people had returned to this quiet, brooding chamber. The owner walked forward and regarded to the rest of the group how impressive this large wooden chest was, and he also inquired if anyone else in the room had been in here before and looked inside it. The party said no, and the owner reached forward and put the candle and holder on top of the heavy box. He was now joined by his wife as they both groped and pulled at the worn, immovable catches. The owner declared that there might be some treasure within this solid wooden oblong. With a renewed strength at this prospect, they managed to wrench the clasps free, removing the candle and with steady laboured movements started to lift up the lid. His wife was the first to scream, but not straight away. It took time for the pair to adjust their eyes to the gloomy contents of this box, for within they found the desiccated corpse of a woman. They assumed it was a woman as the dark, withered remains of flesh that clung to the bones and powdered the white bridal gown gave no indication of sex. Only the dress gave that away. The inside lid of this, for want of a better word, casket was scratched from within by human fingernails. The dark, empty sockets and ghoulish grin of the skull looked down at the last thing Anne was holding. The oils from this object had preserved her ragged hands, and this macabre sight was probably the most horrifying and sad thing anyone in that room had ever seen. Clutched tightly within those withered hands was the mistletoe wreath.
The tale of the mistletoe bride has been recounted many, many times and has been immortalised in the form of a Christmas carol and poem, but this is by no means where it ends. The tale, with its cautionary subject matter, has formed the backbone of many a horror film and literary outing. Why, even this very podcast, with my interpretation of the tale, has now been added to the collective entity. The tale has not only been known by differing media, but also by various titles, such as The Mistletoe Bride, The Mistletoe Bow, and The Lost Bride. But this is by no means a comprehensive list. There is a poem that was written in 1823 by author Samuel Rogers, entitled Ginevra, which also tells the tale of a bride that goes missing on her wedding day, and she also is discovered years later. Full fifty years were passed and all forgot, when, on an idle day, a day of search, mid the old lumber in the gallery, that mouldering chest was noticed, and twas said by one as young and thoughtless as Ginevra, why not remove it from its lurking place? Twas done as soon as said, but on the way it burst, it fell, and lo, a skeleton, with here and there a pearl, an emerald stone, a golden clasp, clasping a shred of gold, all else had perished, save a nuptial ring and a small seal her mother's legacy, engraven with a name, the name of both, Ginevra. There then had she found a grave, Within that chest she had concealed herself, fluttering with joy the happiest of the happy, when a spring lock that lay in ambush there fastened her down forever. This poem also in turn inspired the work of Thomas Bailey, who wrote the lyrics to a famous song which was sung in most households at Christmas time, entitled The Mistletoe Bough in the 1830s. How sad the day when in sportive jest she hid from her lord in the old oak chest. It closed with a spring and a dreadful doom, and the bride lay clasped in a living tomb. Oh, the mistletoe bough. Oh, the mistletoe bough. We have heard the story of why we listen to ghost stories at Christmas, and I have even recounted one. But where is the mystery, you may be asking? Well, Bramsill House is reported to be the origin of the tale of the Mistletoe Bride, for it is here that the series of events are said to have taken place. Nowadays, the building is said to house up to 14 very different ghosts, all who have been seen by residents and visitors alike. And each one has its own story. It is said that within the building, a grey lady, whose husband was a religious dissenter, haunts the library, terrace and the chapel. When her full apparition has been spotted, she is described as incredibly beautiful and young. Her head is bowed, but observers have clearly seen her long golden hair and the streaks of tears that run down her cheeks. It has been argued that she has red-brown hair and wears a sleeveless gown. But during every manifestation, 
it is said that she is accompanied by the smell of lilies of the valley. Her legend states that her husband was beheaded for dissenting and now haunts the stables, the drawing room and the chapel. I'm afraid I cannot tell you if he has been seen with his head or not. Another one of the permanent ghostly residents is that of a green man. Not in a traditional elemental force way, but a man dressed in green who has been seen near the lake and according to author Penny Legg, is believed to be a member of the Cope family who drowned in 1806. Also seen near the lake is the ghost of a gardener who is said to have drowned there also. The diversity of encounters ranges from a knight in shining armour, a lady clad in 17th century dress, a nun and a woman dressed in a Queen Anne period dress. These spirits often can be seen in the drawing room and the chapel. Visitors have been standing in the fleur-de-lis room when they have felt the sensation of a child's hand slowly slip into theirs. The child has also been heard crying within the room and it is believed that this infant could be the child of the Grey Lady. Another spirit of a small boy is said to haunt the terrace. His origins state that he fell from the roof in the 18th century. A young Worcester-like man dressed in the fashionable tennis garments of the 1920s has been seen walking through the reception area of the home. One of the more frequently seen and better known spirits that is said to haunt the long gallery and the Ferda Lee room is that of the woman in white. It is believed that the woman, although briefly seen each time, is clad in a beautiful flowing white wedding dress, and that this is the spirit of Anne, the mistletoe bride. Sir William Cope, in 1890, was owner of the property and therefore had in his possession the purported chest that was the tomb of the bride. It is believed that after many requests to see the aforementioned chest, that he penned and printed a small accompanying leaflet that outlined the basic story of the bride and her fateful game of hide-and-seek. At that time, prospective viewers were also told that the chest had been moved in the early part of the 19th century by the widow of the 10th baronet, and that there were never any real records of the bride and or marriage. It was also claimed that any witnesses to cite the woman in white were no longer living due to the age of the accounts. William Cope also stated that the bridal chest originated in Italy and was in fact associated with the Italian tale of Ginevra and both share a lot of similarities to the bride's tale. Samuel Rogers, the writer of Ginevra, was of the firm belief that his tale was founded in fact, and William Cope had been told that a lady of a distinguished Italian house had claimed it to be of her family heritage, and further stated that the chest had been sold to an Englishman. Further research leads to the fact that Sir John Cope resided in Italy during the 17th century, and could quite possibly have brought many possessions back to England on his return although there appears to be a much earlier version of the 1822 Cope Italy version, and that places the tale in Germany. 
It appears that the legend of the mistletoe bride has been claimed by many houses throughout England, and perhaps even the world. This can be largely attributed to the poem by T.H. Bailey and Sir Henry Bishop, who used an ambiguous location for the retelling. Whether you believe that the tale is real or not, well, you cannot help but take away suspense, apprehension and fear from its recounting. And perhaps that's the point. Maybe this year, when you listen to it, you will be just that little more grateful for the ones you love and hold them just a little bit tighter in your arms. For who knows what may happen by next midwinter. Is the legend of the mistletoe bride based on a real event? Does her spirit roam Brams Hill House, or is it just a cautionary tale to be told at Christmas? Shh! Quiet. Do you hear that? There's someone at the front door. Ah, carol singers. Well, good night, and have a safe midwinter. We will return in the new year for the third series of As Yet Unexplained. My name is Richard Daniels. 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 And I am the archivist for the Occultaria of Albion. The Occultaria of Albion is a publication dedicated to exploring some of the strangest and most bizarre locations across the country, where hauntings, curses, cryptids and more have all been reported. I am now custodian of its archive and am gradually exploring many of the lost files in order to re-release them. You can find the case files which are now available at occultariaofalbion.com The Occultaria of Albion can also be found on YouTube and as a podcast. Go deeper and join the fan club for exclusive content. Go to patreon.com forward slash occultaria. Remain vigilant and remember, the wolves are weird. Oh, loose.